It is so good to be back with you this morning. We're doing a three-week look at uh, Old Testament poetry. Last week we were in Psalm 69, and this week we have the opportunity to open Psalm 92 and take a look at it. If you would turn there, the Pew Bibles, that's 425, and I would like to read Psalm 92 for you. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night, with the ten-string lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I want to take you back to geometry class this morning for a minute. Don't get nervous. Remember learning about the shapes there, though, for the first time, really? And they started with some easy ones. They would put a square up on that board, and they would assign some dimensions to the sides. There would be length, and there would be width. And that was fairly easy, and you could handle that. But then they threw in a rectangle all of a sudden, and it looked a little different, but it was basically the same, length and width. But then triangles came, and trapezoids, and the rhombus, and circles. And at some point, we learn, though we may not remember it now, how to actually calculate area of those things. But the simplest ones, it was just length times width. And then I remember it well, this day in particular, it was a Thursday that they added that next dimension to these figures. They added depth all of a sudden, and it was too much to take for me personally. Suddenly you're faced with these three-dimensional objects on a two-dimensional page, and there's these dotted lines pointing out things that you can't see. And they wanted you to calculate now the surface area on the outside of these objects, or their volume as a whole. Oh, if I could only go back to the two-dimensional world, where it was just length and width. And you remember it too, because it was probably a Thursday for you as well. And you cried out, depth! Why did you have to come? Because of depth, your world collapsed that day. All that you knew was in question. 
The things that you thought you had mastered, all of a sudden you struggled to understand them. But you couldn't go back. It was too late. Depth would change your life forever. Well, just as in math class, today, as we continue our look into Old Testament poetry, we are going to add a new dimension to our understanding. We're going to add depth to our understanding of Old Testament poetry. And we're going to discover that there is more to the Psalms and poetry than perhaps we once thought. But we'll never be able to go back after this. Now, Psalm 92 is a part of what's referred to as the Psalms of Thanksgiving, of which there are about 16. And so that's about 10% of all the Psalms is someone saying, Thank you, Lord! Where the writer expresses to God some thanks for some deliverance that either comes on his behalf, which is singular in the Psalms, or sometimes it's in the plural. It's on behalf of a group of people. And often we don't even know why the thanksgiving is being offered, only that it is. And really this Psalm, Psalm 92, is like so many others that have no named author nor setting that really gives us a clue as to its original writing. Our only clue is, according to the superscript, which happens right before the beginning of the psalm, it states that this psalm was used in later times with the Sabbath worship. So let's look at Psalm 92 this morning. And we're going to receive some depth into our look of Old Testament poetry. Now the writer begins in Psalm 92 by telling us that it is good or it is right to praise the Lord. Look at those first two verses. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to His name, to declare His loving kindness in the morning and His faithfulness by night. The giving of thanks expresses gratitude to God. This is why it's classified simply as a psalm of thanksgiving. It's easy enough so far. Now, when I was young, and we used to get gifts at at holidays and so on, my mother would make us write those dreaded thank you notes where at which time you would sit down on some piece of paper and you would write something really profound like, I'd like to thank you for the $5 that you sent sent me. It was a lot of money back then. I used it to buy a matchbox car and a slingshot to shoot my brother with. (laughs) Now the psalmist doesn't write a letter really. Instead, he writes a poem to express his gratitude to God. The psalmist expresses his gratitude and also, he says, the singing of praises to his name. It's in honor of something God has done. I mean, God's praised for what He's done. We praise Him because He does things. We worship Him because of who He is. Praise Him because of what He does for us. And verse 2 tells us that what has He done? He's been loving and faithful to us. Now, when you say loving and faithful today, we tend to think you're talking about a dog or a cat. But the love of the Lord and His faithfulness as expressed in Psalm 92 are described using words that express really the uniqueness of God's love and faithfulness. Not like human love or human faithfulness. God's loving kindness here refers to a love that only God can express to His people. He's tender-hearted. He's compassionate. He cares because He's God. And no one cares like God cares. And His faithfulness expresses His continued watch care over us. In some sense, you could say here that God is so faithful, He'll continue to be tender-hearted and loving towards us always. The psalmist uses two words. He says, in the morning and evening, to really describe God's actions. God's busy all the time, isn't He? He's saying that God is never asleep at the switch He never is on the edge of his throne saying, what happened? I I wasn't watching for that moment. 
Instead, he shows us that he's loving us in the day here and that he's watching over us in the night. God provides 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year care to his people. And so the writer wants to simply thank him. But how will he? Well, it says he's going to sing his praises. And what is he going to do? He's going to get some musical instruments, of course. Verse 3 says he's going to use the ten-string lute and the harp and the lyre. His music requires the lute, which is something like a guitar. Of course, we know what a harp looks like. And a lyre, couldn't describe it to you if I wanted to, but it is another stringed instrument. And the writer praises the loving and faithful Lord because, in verse 4 he says, You have made me glad by what you have done, and I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. So as he writes in verse 4, he says that God has made him glad by what he's done. And so the writer wants to express his joy over the things that God has accomplished on his behalf. Hence again the psalm of thanksgiving. And then he acknowledges that God does things because he has thought everything out. There's no haphazard actions with God's, right? Look at verse 5. Your thoughts are very deep. Now, we know that God doesn't think. I mean, where would a new thought come from for God? God just knows what to do at every moment, right? Because he's God. He's all-knowing. The writer here, though, uses human traits... To describe God, he, that he has hands or that he thinks. It's called anthropomorphizing. In contrast is the stupidity of man who has absolutely no sense. You can see it follows up with that in verses 6 and 7. Senseless is used to describe the animal-like behavior that man has. Actions without perceptions or analytical ability. So, God has deep thoughts in verse 5. The senseless man, in verse 6 and 7, has no thoughts. He doesn't know really what to do. He doesn't understand the principle that's at work here in verse 7. Look what it says. When the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. So here the wicked are compared to grass that comes up quickly and then dies. It's temporary. It doesn't last. And this analogy is very common in the scriptures. In Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2, it says, Don't fret because of evildoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass. James 1.11 says this, For the sun rises with scorching wind and withers the grass, and so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. The principle is that the wicked of the earth evil people, they'll flourish, they'll succeed. In order that, though, they'll be destroyed. That's what verse 7 indicates, doesn't it? And all who did it, iniquity flourished. It was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. And it proves the point, though, that God's ways prevail. Only God's ways prevail. Only his thoughts are truly great thoughts. Only the way he has prescribed is truly the right way to live. And that's what the psalmist says in verse 8. Look at that. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. God's above all, and his reign and his rule will extend into all eternity. He's exalted, the writer declares. He's the supreme judge, and he will cause the wicked, his enemies, to perish. That's what verse 9 says. Your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. 
In contrast, though, then, he will share his exaltation with his people as he exalts them. Look at verses 10 to 14. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. The psalmist says that he's being exalted because God is exalting him. And the writer recognizes it's God who exalts him. And he uses some really victorious animal imagery here in a few of these verses. And this idea of putting on fresh oil, which was used in keeping up one's appearance. And he does this to describe how he has waited upon the Lord and he praises the Lord for the works that he's done on his behalf. He's vindicated by God as, as his enemies are destroyed, it indicates. And then at the beginning of verse 12, he uses another plant metaphor to describe the rise of the righteous. That they're going to flourish, and he uses the description here of a palm tree and a cedar tree. Now verse 7, describe how the wicked, they flourish like grass that comes up quickly and then is gone quickly. But the righteous, those who act rightly, they grow and they have permanence and, and use of purpose like the date palm, which is something that would yield an edible fruit for people. It's a sap, that sap from it would use, was used to make a drink. Even its branches were woven together and used to thatch the roofs of houses. They used them also in the celebration of the, of the uh, Feast of Booths, Old Testament celebration. And also the cedar of Lebanon, which he talks about here, those grew very large and they were used to make musical instruments and chests and coffins and even used to build buildings, including the temple itself. There's a permanence to these and its uses. And so what is he saying? He's saying the righteous, they last in comparison to the wicked, which like grass, come up quickly and seem to have success. But then they'll be gone quickly. The righteous, though, bring then a lasting message, don't they? Look at verse 15. To declare that the Lord is upright, that He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. The uprightness reflects God's character. He's their rock, the one whom they can rely on, that there's no wickedness in Him at all. Now, in classic Old Testament poetry, which is really what we're concerned about here this morning, the writer ends just like he began. So in verse 2, there was a declarative statement. It said, declare your loving kindness in the morning. Something declared about God. Look at verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. Another declarative statement about God, called bookending it sometimes. So both verses describe traits of God's character and how he acts towards his people. And, and structure is really important as the writer talks about wickedness in between these verses. And then right in the middle of the psalm in verse 8 is another declarative statement about God. So you have this declarative statement in verse 2, and then in verse 8 it declares that you're on high forever. And then in verse 15 to declare that the Lord is upright. And in between, it talks about evil people and how God will eliminate them. See, what this psalm does as Old Testament poetry is it fills us up with God. He crafts this poem so that it will fill us with God. The words of this psalm teach us about God, and they teach us about His dealings in the world. It teaches us that God's praiseworthy for, for the things that He's done. It teaches us that the wicked flourish, but only for a time. And only for the purpose, ultimately, in verse 7, of destruction. In order that God would use them as examples. 
It teaches us that God grows His people for a completely different reason. It teaches us about God through telling us God's character traits. And so the psalm, on the entry level, the first dimension, if you will, is educational. And that's where we'll all start with poetry and the Word of God. The first dimension is the educational dimension, where we learn about God. At the next level, then, at the next dimension, there's a greater connection with God through Old Testament poetry. God connects with His people in the poetic. Poetry is the language of relationship with God. God made us that way. When you take in this psalm, then, you take in God. And with the people of God, then, this psalm resonates with us. It fills you. You feel satisfied with God and who God is and what He does on your behalf. You feel dependent upon God and all that He can do as He cares for you. You're comforted by God as only God can provide comfort. And you want to say things that the writer says. You want to join with Him in declaring these things about God. Your heart declares the loving kindness of the Lord, His faithfulness, that He also is your rock, and He remains on high forever. And this is what we learn in the second dimension of Old Testament poetry, and we're calling it the spiritual dimension. So we have the educational dimension that we learn about God, and we have the spiritual dimension that connects us with God at the level of our soul. We learn in poetry that God feeds and He nourishes our spirits. Is it ethereal? Absolutely. Is it unquantifiable? Yes, it is. And is that really strange for us? As we believe in the rest of this supernatural experience that we're having, knowing the risen Christ? No. Is it any different than being fed at the table that we come to? No, not at all. Just as you can't really describe what the soul looks like, so then you can't describe the soul's feelings with mere words. But when you read Psalm 92 and the poetics in God's Word, they feed and they nourish your soul with God. Because the soul, by God's design, is only satisfied with God. Let me say that again. The soul, by God's design, is truly only satisfied with Him. So there's an educational dimension, a mental dimension, if you will, to the Psalms. And certainly, we need to understand that part of the poetic is that we learn about God. And we need to know that, and we need to teach that to our kids. And now, secondly then, as we're beginning to see, there's a spiritual dimension to the Psalms that feed in us something that hungers. But we can't find satisfaction elsewhere in our lives. And the more we taste of God in the poetic, the sweeter He becomes. And the more you want of Him. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The only satisfying thing when you have tasted God is more of God. I want to get the most out of God because in Him I find my soul is most satisfied. And really it's out of this principle and this ideal that we begin to see that a third dimension emerges. The third dimension to Old Testament poetry is what we call the gospel dimension. How do I get the most out of God? How do I find total satisfaction in God? How can I feed upon God to the ultimate extent? 
How do I get to the place where I become free from the bondage that evil holds me with so that I can be totally consumed by God? You only find your soul's satisfaction in God, in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ, you get the most of God. You get all of God. In Christ, you get total satisfaction with God. In Christ, you're delivered from evil so that you can finally be free to be consumed with God for God's sake. And in God, in Christ, you'll find the soul's addiction. And you're finally satisfied. Something that earthly addictions can't provide continually. So the Psalms then, on the surface, have what we're calling the educational dimension. They also have the spiritual dimension. And finally, there is the gospel dimension to the Psalms. Because the Psalms lead you to desiring the most about God. The poetic in God's Word, it's got depth. It's got the third dimension. The Psalms, the poetic, has depth perhaps more than we ever thought. So really, the question that emerges out of this is where are you reading the Psalms at? What dimension are you at when you read the poetic in the Scriptures? They're fruitful at all levels. But as we come to see the bigger picture, they can grow us from actually the outside inward. As we recognize God more. As we learn and understand more about God. That's the educational dimension. As we begin to feed, though, and find our satisfaction and our soul satisfaction in God, as we meet with Him and as we express relationship with Him, as we enter into that spiritual dimension of Old Testament poetry, it's the language of relationship. We're then moved to know God more and desire the most of Him. We're moved to Christ And we believe in the Gospel where we find all of God. Wherein then God delivers us. God grows us deeper in the Psalms than we really ever thought was possible in a poem. Don't underestimate the power of God's Word in the poetic, in the Psalms. It will take you to the next dimension for your soul's fulfillment. As we grow, as we we feed our souls, as we learn more about God, as we're drawn deeper into relationship with Him, as we express our emotions to Him in relationship. That's what the psalmist does in the poetic. That's what we do when we join with the psalmist, when we take in the poetry in God's Word. We're met with God's deliverance in the Gospel in Old Testament poetry. And there we find the reconciliation that our hearts desire, and we find peace with God for our very souls. You know, King David in the Old Testament, he was called a man after God's own heart. Yeah, that liar, cheater, committed adultery, then killed to cover up his sin, and yet he is the most Old Testament poetry writer, right? He's the most prolific of all of the writers of the Old Testament poetry, King David. Man after God's own heart. He is the man after God's own heart because he is honest with God. And he gets in God's face. And he tells him what's going on with his life and the disappointments he has. And how hard life is. 
He learns about God and he expresses his relationship with God. And he even understands and expresses the gospel at times. Read Psalm 110, it's very clear. Jesus quotes from it. So where are you reading the Psalms at this morning? Begin to grow a dimensional reading of the Psalms. Of Old Testament poetry. Learning about God, the educational. Meeting with Him, the spiritual. Engaging in active and vital relationship with Him, the Gospel dimension. All the dimensions of Old Testament poetry in God's Word will grow you. And in so doing, it will drive us to find our soul's satisfaction in God and in Him alone. Let's pray together. Almighty and ever-living One, we're grateful that You have spoken to our hearts and to our souls in Your Word through poetry which You have made to connect us and to allow us to express ourselves in openness and in emotion to You just as the psalmists do. And that You gave us depth in these things so that we not only learn about You, but that our hearts grow and our spirits are fed in You. And we're connected to You in and through the poetry in Your Word. And we're so grateful, Father, that You've given us these things so that our hearts can express themselves to You and we can know You as the psalmist knows You. And so change us, Father. Grow in us a greater desire now for Your Word, for poetry in Your Word, for our hearts to express themselves, to be honest with You as the psalm writers are honest, and to learn more of You, and to feed on You, and to ultimately find our soul's satisfaction in You and in You alone. These things we ask in Your Son's glorious and precious name. Amen.